following program deals with themes of conflict and racism, which may be challenging for some listeners. It contains some strong language, and we advise listener discretion. Domestic abuse, school shootings, mass killings, ethno-political conflict, genocide, terrorism, and war. Peace psychology is the study of the mental processes that lead to conflict, and how that knowledge can be used in a positive way. In this series, Peace in Mind, we'll be exploring the breadth of peace and conflict psychology. So conflict and peace are, yeah, definitely not to be associated with badness and goodness, evil and good. <laughs> I'm Kim Stewart. And I'm Linda Rose. We're your hosts for this series. Peace in Mind is produced in the studios of 4EB Brisbane, with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Psychologists for Peace, an interest group of the Australian Psychological Society. On today's show, we address the troublesome subject of racism. Racism is an attitude that one's own racial group is superior to another's, or that one's skin colour or ethnicity influences their intelligence or moral qualities. Addressing racism and other forms of intergroup conflict is essential to peace building. Breakfast with Alan Jones on 2GB873. The only language the Middle Eastern youth understand is a good hiding. These Middle Eastern people must be treated with a big stick. It's not just a few Middle Eastern bastards at the weekend, it's thousands. Cronulla's a very long beach and it's been taken over by this scum. It's not a few causing trouble, it's all of them. My family fought to get this country free, you Get off me, you My She basically looked at us and said, what are you looking at? And I said, I think you should, you know, shut your mouth and sit down. You're offending people's, people's ears and offending everyone here. And at that point, she decided to get up and attack us. Mahmood and other passengers challenged the woman. This is not the Australia that she represents. Uh, I thought we were well over this. I thought, you know, we'd surpassed uh, the concept of racism even existing. Since the European occupation until very recently, government policy relating to Aboriginal people has been designed and implemented by non-Aboriginal people and the common justification for most policies for Aborigines was that it was for their own good. But it's now clear that none of the policies have actually made the condition of Australia's Indigenous people any better than it was prior. See, nothing wrong with the word nigger. The only nigger in the woodpile at the moment... I'll use the word nigger when I say it's appropriate. ...is, is indeed, is indeed... The only nigger in the woodpile. What's more, I'll use the word boom, coon, lazy black bastard, thieving black bastard, bludging black bastard, or any other word. How can you explain that to two children who cry and say, why are we called nigger, or why do people call us nigger, and then some guy is reinforcing that negative... You've been listening to a short cross-section demonstrating the attitudes of some Australians on the subject of race. Racism does not just include prejudice, but also an extensive constellation of related actions, including hostility, discrimination, segregation, and structural forms that systematically exclude a racial group. I was born in Fiji, um, came to Australia when I was six, so I'm Indian with a mix of other things. Um, I went to a school where I was the only black person and nobody could tell that I was Indian. For all they knew, I was Aboriginal or African. Probably it's probably been the hardest 
years is when you're a child and you're exposed to racism and you're not you don't understand it and you only learn of how how these children have been brought up to view you and hate you and then you have no choice but to hate them back you have no choice to sometimes bully them which is what I did for when I was in about grade seven in primary school yeah you just heard from Hamida a young Australian Muslim woman who has experienced lifelong attacks because of her skin colour or religious affiliation. Like other forms of exclusion based on difference to the majority group, racism is an important source of conflict and victimisation of other groups. People who have experienced racism throughout their lives may experience low self-esteem, depression, anxiety in social situations, anger and hostility, and trauma-related symptoms. On a societal level, racism can lead to apartheid and violence between groups. In Australia, racism has been behind the treatment of Indigenous Australians and a number of riots in Australian cities in recent years. Addressing attitudes and values that accept racism is an important way that psychology has helped an understanding of and solutions to racism. You know I'm a social psychologist and what we fundamentally argue is Yes, there are differences between individuals, but groups are a really important driver of our behaviour towards both people within my group and towards people from other groups. Today we talked to Dr Liz Jones, Associate Professor and Director of Organisational Psychology at Griffith University. Dr Jones's research on intergroup relations has looked at how groups interact and what methods are successful at breaking down barriers between racial and ethnic groups. In the Cronulla riots, up pulls this ute, these guys open up their little gas stove and they start cooking sausages. We're going to have an Australian barbecue and they put up signs saying no to bully here. So there was something that, you know, at that very basic level, people know that food matters here. Yeah. Um, and that was going to be a way of expressing our very Australianness is to get, you know, another snag on the barbie. A lot of the work I've done, as I said, has been in intergroup communication, so it uses intergroup communication theory. And we talk about it as, you know, there's a notion of threat. So it's threat to identity, threat to the status of my group. And so I particularly looked at things around, you know, um, institutions, the support for institutions. If I get a sense that more money from the government is going towards particular ethnic groups rather than my group, I can feel threatened in that way. I can feel threatened by just the sheer numbers. So when my neighbourhood used to be all white and now I live in a neighbourhood with many, many Sudanese people, I can feel threat there to my group from that. So it can be institutional, it can be economic. I'm feeling like the jobs and the money, you know, those Chinese people, they're coming in and they're taking all the high status jobs now. They're the doctors, they're the dentists. You know, it's that sense of threat to my group that particularly motivates me to respond. that erupted at Cronulla in Sydney's south at the weekend continued overnight with police cars attacked in one suburb and dozens smashed in another. Large numbers of mainly young people had gathered to, in their words, reclaim Cronulla Beach from gangs of youths, mainly of Lebanese descent. 
And we don't need these celebrities. And the media clearly has a role there to play. And it's interesting, I'll, I'll mention, I'm sure I'm allowed to mention one more little study. I have a, an honour student this year who our interest was in, does it matter how we label groups? And in the media, for example, when we describe a group that you could call refugees or asylum seekers, we use many different labels in the media. And so they might be called boat people, they might be called illegals. We have some terms that may be more negative, but simply that are also different labels. And our interest is, does it matter what label the media use? What's the effect of that? And so he's again doing a, a simple vignette study describing a person who's come from Ethiopia, but from a range of different labels of whether he's a migrant, an asylum seeker, an illegal immigrant, a boat person. How does that affect the way we perceive that person? Because that, I am really interested in what effect does the way the media reports things. And again, it's increasing people's sense of threat and shock jocks do that very well. They know what's going to make people feel concerned and and they say it over and over and it's a very ugly aspect potentially of media because you know and you notice how often when they do make corrections to stories in the media it's usually in a tiny little print in the bottom corner of an obscure page of the paper it's not on the front page that they um, even correct misinformation i do not accept that there is underlying racism in this country i have always taken a more optimistic view of the character of the Australian people. This nation of ours has been able to absorb millions of people from different parts of the world over a period of now some 40 years and we have done so with remarkable success and in a way that has brought enormous credit to this country. You might be able to argue just potentially that at the very beginning John Howard thought that you know babies had been thrown overboard but he very quickly knew that that was untrue very quickly and yet didn't come out clearly and state that and the media didn't come out many parts of the media very clearly and state that and it was wrong it's not just like it's an interpretation of events and we all have different interpretations in that case it was actually wrong and yet, you know, one of the things I can remember from when I first did social psychology as a second year university student was when we give people misinformation and then later on correct it, there's still an element of belief in the misinformation there. We don't entirely erase that memory of that misinformation. And in fact, oftentimes they won't even believe the new information. And so politicians can play on that. They can say later, oh, no, no, I was wrong. The babies weren't thrown overboard. But what people remember is those people throw their babies overboard. So it can be an intentional strategy. I think I've always had a fascination with the fact that we often focus on communication as something that occurs at an interpersonal level. And my passion since I first did my PhD with Cindy Gawa here at University of Queensland was the fact that we don't just communicate as individuals, we communicate as members of groups. And that communication can at times be positive, but at times it can be negative and conflictual and we can do things deliberately in our communication to signal to the other person you're not in my group, you don't belong. 
as well as doing things to make the person feel that it's more interpersonal or you are part of my group, you do belong. So at its most basic 101, having an in-group is something that's both a source of self-esteem for me, but it's also a sense-making device for me of um, knowing who is part of me and who is not part of me. How can I categorise people? You know, we do naturally categorise people. You're listening to Peace in Mind on 4EB, 4ZZZ and the Community Radio Network. In a middle-class beach suburb of Sydney, anyone of Middle Eastern appearance became a potential target. Thousands of Anglo-Australian full-scale race riots. Several people were set upon and bashed because they appeared to be of Middle Eastern descent. Lebanese youths were being hunted down and bashed. A day of race riots. A day of bashing libs or wogs. Attacking people of Middle Eastern origin. This is the best day I've ever seen in Cronulla in the five years I've lived here. What kind of grubs? Well, I tell you what kind of grubs this lot were. This lot were Middle Eastern grubs. Middle Eastern sucks. Lebanese and wogs and shit. You're not allowed to say it, but I'm saying it. Australians old and new shouldn't have to put up with this scum. On Peace in Mind, we're talking about racism, and you've been listening to a song by Wax Audio called You Better Run, You Better Take Cover. Dr. Liz Jones is Associate Professor and Director of Organisational Psychology at Griffith University. Her research focuses on intergroup relations. The way we create a good feeling about our own group is in part by derogating out groups, and and I always think that um, sporting groups are an excellent way to look at that because I feel good about my club by derogating other clubs. So we talk about the ABC, anyone but Collingwood winning the AFL on the weekend. It it bolsters my self-esteem and my group's esteem by derogating the other group. Many people see competitiveness as a natural human trait. Does Liz agree that people will always compete? I mean, I don't want to agree with that, but yes, at our level, I think there is a natural tendency for us to do that. I mean, we're seeking membership of groups that make us feel good. Groups that make us feel good are usually high status groups. So we want to make our group feel like it's got a higher status than another group. Obviously, there's been many years of research on intergroup contact and looking at the benefits that come from contact that occurs under the right conditions, you know, where you've got subordinate goals and... Uh, <laughs> I'm getting a bit wet, but it's alright, I'm not very wet. <laughs> so we've got that interest, you know, of the contact. What my colleague, and this is work I've done with um, Stepano Ocapinti out at Griffith University, what we got interested in is a central part of who we are, particularly cultural groups, is what we eat. It's a real marker of many cultural groups that you know we know in Australia, we think, well, Indians eat curry and the Italians eat pasta and pizza. We have these notions of food being part of our identity. And so that was in the back of our minds as well as another area of research that's gone on in food sharing in an interpersonal context. And Paul Rosen and his colleagues have done a lot of work where they have um, said, what happens if I sit two people down together and they're talking. What happens if they're sharing food? What happens if one is feeding the other? What happens if you both eat from the same spoon? 
And that's representative when we share food and in those ways of particularly feeding one another or sharing the same spoon, it signifies a closer interpersonal relationship. So it started us thinking about, well, what happens if you share food across cultural groups? Does that bring groups closer together? Does that increase our liking for people who are a member of an out group? So where Stefano started was simply to say, let me establish first, let's look at what happens when I get a Chinese person and I have Australians watching that Chinese person either eating um, you know, pork chow min or a meat pie. And what he found was that when you're eating the meat pie, that Chinese person was seen as more Australian. There was something about eating the food of a typical food of the Australian culture that made that person seem more Australian yeah. than when they were eating their own culturally coded foods. So we went on from that and thought, well, let's take this another step further and let's look at what happens. What if we set up, we're social psychologists, so we love a good experiment. And we thought, we'll set up an experiment where we get a vignette study, where the vignette was a story of couples. One couple in the initial study was Chinese ethnic background, the other couple was Anglo-Australian ethnic background. They meet at the opening of a community centre in a suburb of Melbourne, so it wasn't Brisbane. And what we did was manipulate that everyone sits down and has dinner together at the different tables. These people were strangers and they were either under a number of conditions. They were either eating their own culturally coded food, they were sharing, or both group couples, Anglo-Australian food, both couples were sharing the ethnically Chinese food, or they flipped it over just so that we knew what would happen if the Chinese people were eating Australian, the Australians were eating Chinese. And then we simply asked a bunch of people to rate the couples, you know, how warm would you say, how friendly, how kind, how intelligent, how powerful were these people? If we don't have enough police, what's wrong with getting the army in? Yeah. Get these folks a, a bit of a rifle butt in the face and, and they'll, they'll back off, they're cowards. Well, if it gets to that, we might have to do that. Do you follow yes, what I'm saying? to work, Alan. Mm -hmm. I've got two fluent jobs. If the police can't do the job, the next tier is us. Yeah, good on you, John. Now, uh, you know, my grandfather was an old digger and he used to say to me when we were growing up, listen, shoot one, the rest will run. <laughs> <laughs> we did identify that when they were sharing the food, the same food, or they were sharing the others ethnically coded food, we rated them more positively. So there's something about sharing that food that simply said that alone made me rate them as more friendly, more kind, more warm. What I also find interesting though is how far do these effects go. So we also did this with, again, with Indian couples and with an Arab couple. And I think what was most interesting to me is, you know, if we were picking the minority group in Australia at the moment, there's probably some of the most negative attitudes toward. It would be people who are deemed Muslim. And for most Australians, they see Arabs as um, potentially Muslims and potentially a range of negative things, therefore. What happened for the Muslims is they had to be eating the Anglo-Australian food to be getting the positive effects. If the Anglo-Australians and the um, Arab couples were sharing the Arab food, we didn't get that positive effect that we got for other cultural groups. So sharing their food doesn't make it more positive and I think it's because they are probably one of the ethnic groups that we're particularly most negative toward at present. 
other groups like Chinese ethnic background or the Indians, yes, they're a minority group here, but there's that less obvious negative um, attitudes towards them. So there's something about, if you share the food of my culture, I, I trust you more. There's something about you're more like me, so I feel more positively toward you. But we also want to take that a step further and say, does it go beyond just rating you as an individual? And we got them to also fill in measures of prejudice and attitudes towards multiculturalism. And I think the even more interesting bit was, at least in that minute, and we don't know if that effect lasts, but in that minute, we could find that people had more positive attitudes towards multiculturalism and expressed less blatant prejudice when they'd seen these Chinese people sharing the food of, you know, with the Anglo-Australian. But it seems to be something about they, it's reducing the social distance, they're doing something that's more like us. But we also do think there's something specific about food is important here. You know, food is really central to our survival. You're listening to Peace in Mind on 4EB, 4ZZZ and the Community Radio Network. Australians are not racist, mate. We let everybody in our country, no matter who it is, we let them in, they come in here, they don't follow our values. We need to fight back. We're only sticking up for what is ours. We fought the Japanese, we will fight the Lebanese, and we will take our country back. fundamentally do not believe Australians are racist, so I don't. So what does it take then for people to, to stand up and be different, you know, and, and sort of reject their groups? That's quite a very hard thing to ask people to do, to reject their group and do the right thing. Yes, because if you reject your group, you run the risk of being shunned by your group. And, you know, we know groups are good for us. Um, you know, all the basic research on when people migrate to a new country is, you know, you've got different strategies. You can either um, very much become an Australian when you go to a new country. You may try and keep both aspects of your identity, your country of origin and your Australian identity, take on both parts. But the people we know who do most poorly, and think there's very much a consideration of how this affects Indigenous people, is the people who don't have a strong sense of belonging to either group anymore. So they become separated, you know. They have much poorer both physical and mental health outcomes. Academic achievement, you know, there's a range of negative outcomes for those people. So, yes, we do need to belong to groups. And it is that, that thing about, you know, that basic how do we have contact, because we do know contact does reduce prejudice between groups, but we have to have con contact where it's not conflictual, where there's a more equal power in the situation. So contact where it's a very high status group who's got all the resources with a lower status group, that has much less effect. 
is much less effective in terms of contact. So it is meeting those basic conditions of, of what sort of contact we need. And you know, there are very clear structural factors that impede improving intergroup relations, say in Israel. You know, simply the, that economic factor, those walls, you know, there's a range of things that me with my psychologist idea of reducing it, that can't really reduce the conflict between the groups when you've got those structural barriers still in place. You know, when you were in South Africa, when you had legal structural apartheid, that's a, a major barrier to improving intergroup relations. There's a very delightful book by Philip Zimbardo, the famous prison experiment, most people know him from first year psychology. Well, what I think is more interesting is in his more recent book, he went and looked at what happened in Abu Ghraib and said, how does that happen? Are these a bunch of bad soldiers who happen to end up in the same place? And he does a really convincing argument taking us through, no, let's look at the social context, let's look at what was going on there. This isn't just a bunch of bad apples. It was the social situation in which they were in. Many of these people were perfectly decent people back in other aspects of their life, but they were in a particular social situation, and a very threatening to them social situation. You know, these were people who were feeling under immense um, threat of, you know, at any time a bomb could be going off as they're driving down the road. It's very heightened awareness of those of that intergroup context that you're in a group, so you're behaving less as an individual, you're more individuated, so these things can happen in that context that, yeah, wouldn't happen when they were actually acting as individual. And the only way for them to work effectively in very high-risk situations is to, yes, be very much operating as a group, not as individuals. You can't afford, in a war situation, for someone to go off and be doing their individual thing. Today on Peace in Mind, we've been looking at racism and intergroup relations with Dr. Liz Jones. It is interesting that Liz emphasises that group membership can have both good and bad effects. It is in appeal to those groups that we all belong to that many psychologists see remedies to problems like racism. Education, social and economic equality are also essential elements of the justice puzzle. An interesting anecdote that was told to me last night that, you know, when you're thinking about what can you do in a classroom, and we were talking about using debates. You know, it's often a technique we use for students for their learning. But what happens when I ask people to debate on the side of the other group? So this particular lecturer was saying to me, she was getting them to have a debate about do men or women make better leaders? And so she had the men debating that women made better leaders and the women debating that men made better leaders. And simply we know that when we get people to step into the other people's shoes and think about it from their perspective, that that can make us more understanding and more empathic towards that other group and that other group's viewpoints. Next time on Peace in Mind, we look at women, war and peacemaking. That's it for this edition of Peace in Mind. Thanks for listening. Peace in Mind is produced for the Community Radio Network with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Psychologists for Peace, an interest group of the Australian Psychological Society. Theme and background music by Jandy Rainbow, unisonicascension.com. Series producers Kim Stewart, Linda Rose and Nathan Renault. 
You can find out more about the topics we cover by going to facebook.com slash peaceinmindproject.com.